I do want to wish you a happy new year as we give 2020 the boot and as we really cry out together to the Lord for his mercy in 2021, that he would be uh, more present with us now more than ever, that he would draw us close to himself, that he would refine us, uh, that he teach us even greater truths about who he is in our lives uh, than he has ever before, that he'd use us for his kingdom's sake more this coming year than ever before. With the uh, liturgical season of Epiphany, or day of celebration today, uh, according to our liturgical calendar, I thought we would return to Matthew chapter 2. It's a passage I actually preached on December 7, uh, 2017, I think it was. Uh, And I'd commend that sermon to you to look back at it at some point. It gives very helpful information about the Magi and who they were in the context of the Gospel of Matthew and uh, along with the Old Testament witness, particularly how the Magi are connected to the, the Babylonian exile. But today I thought we'd focus more on the second half of uh, of this story of the wise men and Herod, and, and, and in particular, what prompted Joseph and Mary and Jesus' departure from Bethlehem to Egypt. Uh, to do so, we're going to look at three different passages, Matthew 2, of course, and uh, our Old Testament passage of Jeremiah 31, but we'll also look at Gen- Genesis chapter 35. So if you have a Bible handy at home or pull out your phone, uh, it, I think it'll be very helpful to have all three of those scriptures available to you as we uh, talk through this passage together this morning. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, again, we rejoice every day that you give us the breath of life. Uh, this day in particular, as we gather uh, in the sanctuary and in our homes uh, in Boston, Metro Boston, Massachusetts, throughout the United States, and indeed around this world, as we gather as one people uh, through this virtual platform. We ask that you would be present with us wherever we might be. Help us to understand who you are and help us to live in obedience to that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but uh, last year, Tim Leary, our director of uh, graduate ministries, he preached on this same passage right around this time last year. He encouraged us to have 2020 vision. He said that we would have, uh, that 2020 would be a year of vision casting for our church. You know, just as Joseph and Mary followed the, the, the word of the Lord to leave Egypt, well, we need to follow and have a vision to to follow the Lord in 2020. And I I thought he was right. 2020 was going to be an amazing year of vision casting and living that out as Park Street Church. But it didn't really turn out that way, uh, did it? It wasn't really that kind of year. I'm not sure how 2020 was for you But this was about as blurry, messy, messed up year as I could remember. Filled with hardship, 
filled with frustration at every turn. My uh, family and I, we were in our van about a, last month. We were going to a nighttime Christmas drive-through light show, and we began to reflect on the year. We began to talk about COVID, and that led to all the things we couldn't do because of COVID. Uh, and to my, all of our surprises, my youngest daughter, seven-year-old Tabitha, just as, as we're going through these things, with a, a great intensity, she just shouts out, stupid COVID. <laughs> and then she actually caught herself and she began to apologize uh, for saying that because she, you know, she said, I know I shouldn't say stupid because my teacher says that stupid is a bad word. But we all stopped her in her tracks, in her apology tracks, and told her it was absolutely appropriate to call COVID stupid. You go, girl. Everything that has happened to us having to do with COVID just feels stupid. I know I've shed a lot of tears this past year for some reasons that you are aware of and for other reasons that you probably are not. And I suspect you have as well. Because everything just seems disjointed, dystopian, out of place, just plain wrong for so many reasons. And I know what has transpired in 2020 has deeply impacted most of our lives in ways that have been frustrating and hurtful and, and may have affected you in profound ways that no one else even begins to understand. There are times in each of our lives when, well, when a cry so deep, so profound, so intense, so desperate erupts in us, and we cry out, where are you, God? Why are you why is this happening? What, what are you doing? Have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten me, God? This might be one of those times for you in your life. Certainly for the moms and dads living in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, it, in the still of the night, you could have heard a cry just like that. We, we know the story well enough from what we just read. Uh, these poor moms and dads, their door flung open and standing before them was a, gu uh, a guard sent by Herod and he begins to demand that they hand over their, their baby. And, and as they do, the guard takes a knife and, and plunges it into the the heart of their little baby boy and as he breathes his last and and this happened over and over throughout the streets of Bethlehem until all of the babies the male babies two years and under were put to death I mean that is just a that kind of evil that kind of tragedy it makes no sense God where are you 
when that happens? Why is that happening to me? Why is that happening to my family, to my child? Have you forgotten us, Lord? Have you forgotten me, Lord? Again, I want to ask you, is that, have you been feeling that way lately? You may be reluctant to compare what you're going through with the kind of tragedy that unfolded in, in Bethlehem as described in Matthew 2, and I, I could understand. But, but in the end, when God just doesn't seem to be there, and you can't make sense of anything that's happening around you, that everything seems to be chaotic and life seems to be out of control, and you cry out to him, and it seems like he is not hearing you, that he is not answering Well, it's all just fundamentally the same question that impacts us just as deeply, no matter what our life circumstance and hardship we might be going through. It's the same place of despair. God, are you there? Do you care? Why is this happening? On the ground, we know why uh, this event did happen in Bethlehem, because it was because of King Herod. That's why it happened. Everything we know of Herod in his later days, he he was a paranoid tyrant. The historian Josephus, contemporary at that time, he wrote a history that tells us that Herod killed his brother-in-law. Herod killed his mother-in-law. Herod killed his favorite wife. Herod killed three of his own children. Josephus tells us that upon Herod's death, he had actually given orders. It didn't happen, but he had actually given orders that all of the elite uh, Jews in Jerusalem were to be put to death so that the grieving that happened that day might actually be authentic because, of course, they wouldn't have cried if Herod himself died. That's the kind of guy Herod was. So it takes us by no surprise that, uh, you know, that these children would have been put to death, that Herod would order this to happen, to safeguard his power as the Magi brought news to him that, well, one who would be born king of the Jews would be, uh, was born nearby. But Matthew indicates that there's much more going on here, that that there is more at play than just Herod's psychotic tyranny. After describing the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2, 17 and 18, he says, Matthew says this, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's the cry that Matthew records in response to this tragedy in Bethlehem. He he doesn't speak specifically of the reaction of the families of Bethlehem. Uh, Of course, they, you know, they, surely they wept and shed tears of lamentation, but But he speaks of lamentation in a town called Ramah, spoken about by Jeremiah. And then he 
references Rachel weeping for her children. Why does he do that? What, why, what is this prophetic connection to what happened in Bethlehem and some point in the past in Ramah? Well, a number of scholars think Matthew was actually playing footloose and fancy free with this one verse reference to Jeremiah 31, thinking, you know, Matthew was just a little too eager to find something in the Old Testament uh, prophetic uh, books to make a connection to the birth of Christ when actually there, there really isn't any there. Uh, Ramah, that, that town, is, is actually five miles north of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem was five miles south of Jerusalem. They're totally different places. Uh, R.T. France, he, he's, I think, wrote one of the best commentaries on Matthew. He himself says, he calls this quotation Matthew's most puzzling quotation. And he says that nothing in the passage in Jeremiah provides any basis to link it with the story of Jesus. But I think he's wrong. I, I, I think there was clear reason he linked this quote to what was unfolding through the birth of Jesus, which spoke directly to the despair that the people in that generation were facing and in turn speaks into the despair that some of us are feeling and experiencing today. So let's take a closer look at this quote from Jeremiah that Matthew quotes prophetically as a prophetic fulfillment. He says, a voice heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's first talk about Ramah and then talk about Rachel. As I said, if you look on a Bible map, uh, Ramah, it is five miles north of Jerusalem. It is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, most prominently, it was the place in which Samuel, the last judge, uh, a prophet of the Lord, Samuel, that's where he was born, that's where he lived. And, and Samuel, you know, he's the one who uh, anointed King Saul and more importantly, he anointed King David. Uh, but Jeremiah talks about weeping coming from Ah. So what's the weeping? Uh, if you look further in, in the book of Jeremiah, if you move from chapter 31 to chapter 40, you will find out what that weeping is from. Because Ramah ended up serving as the, the site of deportation of the Jews to Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar, he overran the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem in 586. And that's what ended the, the Davidic dynasty, that kingdom. Uh, so Ramah was the place of deportation. It symbolized the end of the Davidic kingdom. In fact, you could say Ramah was a bookend. You had the Davidic kingdom emerging from Ramah through Samuel on one end, and you have then uh, 
Ramah on the other end is a bookend, uh, a, a place of great despair as God's people were then sent into exile. And you have to remember what the Davidic kingdom was all about. It was through David that God promised all of the, the, the wonderful promises he extended to uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, that they would be a blessed nation, that they would be a light to the world, they would be brought to a promised land, and God would establish an everlasting kingdom. Well, all of that comes to the end in Ramah, in Jeremiah's eyes as he's watching it unfold. The kingdom was wiped out. The hope of the people was gone as they were deported then again off to Babylon. In fact, you know that uh, Jeremiah pens a whole book, also included in the Old Testament, all about this mourning and weeping and remorse in response to the deportation and exile, and it's called the Book of Lamentations. Uh, you can look it up in your Old Testament. You'll see it's all just weeping from one end to the other. So that's the voice that is heard in Ramah in which Jeremiah speaks, uh, of which Jeremiah speaks. But why the reference to Rachel? Uh, why then, you know, Rachel's weeping for her children? Well, you probably know in, in Hebrew poetry, and it's also true in uh, prophetic writing as well, that you'll often find lines written in couplets, two together, uh, they, they convey the same basic meaning, but they use different imagery uh, or metaphor to, to drive home the main point. And so you have coupled here with this loud voice coming out of Ramah, you have coupled with it now uh, one of the matriarchs who was married to Jacob, uh, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and, and she's metaphorically weeping over her children as the promises which had been extended through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by the Lord was now wholly lost as the last tribe was now being deported out of the promised land. But there's more to this than just this couplet kind of literary device or metaphor. Because, I mean, think about it. What there are a number of matriarchs that Jeremiah could have mentioned. Uh, why did he choose Rachel? He, he, could have, he could have mentioned Sarah. He, Sarah's the wife of, of Abraham, and Abraham's the big guy. It all starts with Abraham. So why not start with Sarah weeping over all of her children? Or Rebecca, who's married to Isaac. Or, or, or even better, how about Leah? Leah was Jacob's other wife. And Leah was actually, well, she had six children uh, given to Jacob. And uh, six out of the 12 tribes were from her, from her lineage. Uh, and, and in fact, Judah came from Leah. And, and, and as we know, here they are in the southern kingdom, uh, the, the last tribe. Uh, being sent out of the promise. So why not Leah? Why does Jeremiah mention Rachel instead? Well, 
it's because of chapter 35 in Genesis. If you do have your Bible, open up to it, and, and you can take a look at it. If you look at, uh, starting at chapter, uh, verse 9 in chapter 35, the Lord confirms that Jacob's name shall be changed to Israel, and then the Lord extends all of the covenant promises that he had already given to Abraham and to Isaac, uh, and, and now reaffirming them with Jacob. He tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply, and that he would become a great nation, and kings would come from his body. And what's the very next story? Jacob and his wife, Rachel, they're going to, of all places, they're going to Bethlehem. And Rachel is with child, and she goes into labor on the way, and it all goes wrong. And remember, the, the, the promises uh, were just given, just, just given just a moment before about how Jacob and his family would be blessed and be fruitful and kings would come from them. And here now Rachel is laying uh, in, in the middle of the throes of labor, in despair, full of fear, and she and her ch child, they're about to die. I mean, can't you hear her crying out to God, God, where are you? I need you. Why is this happening to me? Her life is about to come to an end. Her, her child's life is about to come to an end. Everything that had just been spoken to jo Jacob seemed to be lost for her and her child. Well, that's, that's the same way it, you know, it, or in the same way that Rachel lay there in despair as she and her child faced death, believing that all the promises to her and her child would be lost. Well, so too, a thousand years later was a weeping herd coming from Ramah because all of the promises now seem to be lost. And you know what? From Matthew's perspective, the weeping that was heard from Ramah, that, start, that it started in 586 BC. It, it never ended. In fact, at the beginning of the gospel, in, in this context in Jerusalem where Herod and these religious leaders were, it was it was now worse, it was now far worse than it had ever been. Because you see, yeah, they, they did come back from exile. They came back out of Babylon. They did rebuild the temple. Nothing like what it looked like in, in the previous glory years of, of, of Solomon. And, and God's presence never came into that temple like he had his presence was in the previous temple. And then even the, the temple itself was then rebuilt and, and reshaped by Herod and the Romans. And I mean, they ended up calling it Herod's temple. Uh, it wasn't the temple built by the hands of God as, and directed by the Lord as he had in the past. And, and, 
you know, there's 400 years, uh, there's no word from a prophet, and, and you know, worst of all was the religious leaders themselves. They were as corrupt as Herod was at this point. You just kind of get an intonation of that in Matthew uh, chapter 2. But as you continue to read through Matthew, you begin to realize that they want Jesus dead just as much as Herod wanted Jesus dead. So it was bad enough living in exile in Babylon, but even when they returned to the land of Judah, they continued to be oppressed by foreign powers and corrupt leaders who were in league with each other. The realities of the exile, they had not come to an end. And so the cry that was heard that night coming from Bethlehem was one long continuous cry that extended from Ramah to that very day from a people who was who were mourning for generations, those who were poor and depleted in spirit. They were, they were not just humbled by their situation, they were humiliated. They weren't just meek, they were powerless. They were persecuted. They, they were parched, wanting to see righteousness once again reign, but there was left no relief. God had withdrawn his presence from his people. I said a prophet wasn't heard from for 400 years. The promises were lost. No hope seemed to be in sight for them. They were a broken people, helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, longing to know where God was in the middle of their suffering, their oppression, their misery, their loss. They were exiled in their own homes, captive in their own homes. Actually kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the cry of Rachel for her children. That's the cry of Ramah. That's the cry that was heard through the streets of Bethlehem as those children were slaughtered. And for some of you, for some of you, that may also capture the essence of your cry today. God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned me? Is everything lost like it feels to me right now? But having said all that, that is not the primary purpose or primary reason why Matthew claims that Jeremiah 31, 15 was then fulfilled. This was not a fulfillment of continuous, ongoing despair. That was not his point at all. This was a tangible movement of fulfilled hope, finally putting an end to despair. And I know this is true because if, when you read Jeremiah 31, 15, you cannot read it unless you read Jeremiah 16. 
and Jeremiah 17 and 18 and, and go before Jeremiah 31, 15. Look at 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. Listen, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, he says in verse 16. Verse 17, there is hope for your future. Verse 18, I have heard Ephraim grieving. I have heard it, the Lord says. Or go again back to verse 11. Before 15, the Lord says, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob from hands too strong for him. Verse 12, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Verse 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness instead of sorrow. In fact, this statement from Ramah about weeping is spoken in the center of chapters 30 and 31, this, this one unit, these two chapters, and it's all pure, high-octane good news. I mean, take a look at it yourself, and you'll see that it's so. Verse 15 is the only verse in this whole section that speaks of weeping, uh, and when it does, it's immediately followed by the word of the Lord that says, Do not weep. I have heard your cry. I've promised to turn your mourning into joy, the Lord says, and redeem Jacob from hands that are too strong for him. Do you see Matthew's point? What's happening in chapter 2 of his gospel is a moment of transformation from despair to hope. It's because what was described in verse 15, it was coming to an end. And what was described in verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 16 and 17 and 18 and the rest of the section, everything else spoken about God's promise to redeem his people was coming to pass through Jesus. And what about Rachel? Uh, what about Rachel back in Genesis 35? She hears these great promises given to Jacob by God. And she's headed to Bethlehem, but then she's in the throes of childbirth. Birth. Everything takes a turn for the worse, facing death, facing loss. What does her midwife say to her in verse 17? Do not fear, or NIV says, do not despair. Why? For you have a son. She says, a son is born to you. And it says that she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrows. But Jacob immediately, he says, ah, I'm changing that name. This child's new name is going to be Benjamin. Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. A man of sorrows. 
a man who would sit at the right hand of his father, a son who would put an end to Rachel's fear and despair. Matthew's gospel claim, well, it's that Jeremiah 31 was unfolding before their eyes. God had heard the cry of his people, and he had responded by sending his son. You, you, you probably have read the gospel of Matthew before. And you know, in Matthew chapter 5, it has this section called the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the ones who uh, mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And most often, you know, folks say, well, you know, that's a discourse on Christian virtue. You know, here, here's what we should do. And they're right, that we should hunger and thirst after righteousness. We, uh, we should be meek and... Uh, those are things we, we should do. But that's not Jesus' point. That's not why he brings his disciples to the mount. He brings his disciples to the mount and the crowds uh, who were before him to make a proclamation that those who have been mourning for so long, those who have been living humbly, poor in spirit, meekly for generations, waiting for God to deliver them. Those of you who, who, who face persecution because of your fidelity to, to the Lord, those who are so hungry for righteousness to finally prevail, those have been waiting for all of this so long to happen. Blessed are you, you are blessed because the kingdom of God is now at hand. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples in that crowd on the mount that day. Matthew's gospel claimed that it's that God has heard the cries of his people and responded with Jesus Christ Emmanuel, God with us. He has not forgotten them. He's not abandoned them. He loves them. He has come to be with his people again. And, and that's, that's really is my single message, my word for you today. It's not a complicated word. It's not complex. It's a simple word. It's a word that I need to hear it's a word that you need to be reminded of again, over and over, especially at a time like this. You may be wondering where God is and what is unfolding. You may be crying yourself to sleep night after night, wondering, does God care for you? Is he really there? Has he abandoned me? Listen, your cry has been heard. He gathers every one of your tears before his throne and he's moved by compassion for you. God never abandons his people. He never did in the past. 
He will not now. He will not in the future. Yeah, he may remove his favor, pull his favor back from us from time to time to to teach us how desperately we need him, but he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Last week, if you were able to uh, watch, you heard an amazing sermon by Michael Balboni on waiting for the Lord. He gave such helpful counsel about the benefits of waiting on the Lord that it teaches us to live in the now, that, that the Lord through waiting refines us and, and, and confronts our unbelief. And it makes us realize how much we need God himself rather than the things of this world. It was a great message to take to heart. But keep in mind, Michael's counsel was premised on this one gospel truth, this rock-solid assurance that your hope is not in vain if your hope is in the Lord. You can believe with rock-solid assurance that God loves you, that he hears you, that he will come to you, and eventually he will answer you. I don't know the depth of grief right now that you may be going through, but he does. I don't know how he will deliver you from these troubles, but he will. I don't know what it's going to take to get you from this side of the sea to that side of the sea, but I know that he has what it takes to get you through. You know, those who came before Christ, I could, I could imagine how it would have, would have been for them to just keep waiting and waiting. Uh, how hard it must have been and how they must have even questioned, Lord, are you ever going to come to redeem your people? Hebrews 11 says, that, that, but they held fast to the faith. Even in that kind of circumstance. Hebrews 11, 36 to 38 puts it this way. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, lived in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better so that only together with us would they be made perfect. But brothers and sisters, we live on the other side of the incarnation. We have heard a voice calling from the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We have seen the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and the deaf hear. We have seen a dead man rise from the grave. We have seen our Savior for the joy set before him endure the cross, scorn in its shame, and sit down at the right hand of the Father. We've seen Satan fall like lightning. We've witnessed his spirit poured out on his people who were once poor in spirit. And we hear him telling us all who are weary 
and heavy laden. Come unto me, for I will give you rest. And so we know, we know our hope is not in vain. Look, you read, this week you need to take Jeremiah 30 and 31, read it all week long, every day, meditate it, and claim it for yourself. We know he hears our cries, and in due time, well, he will answer by his presence and his power. Listen, whatever you're going through today, no matter how hard it is, I want you to know that God will not abandon you. He will love you. He has compassion on you. He hears your cries and he will answer. He will turn your mourning into joy. Hold fast. Hold on. Don't lose hope. He will answer. He will come to you and get you through. May it be so. Trust him this day. Let's pray. Lord, we are weary. We have no idea what this year holds, but you do, and we lay ourselves before you asking that you would guide us, you would protect us, you would provide for us, and you would lead us where you would have us go. Oh Lord, hear the cries of your people and answer. Through Christ we pray. Amen.